This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Nazi Germany, concentration camps, human rights violations, Laura Bush is weighed in, Michelle Obama, Rosalind Carter, got all the first ladies going back to Eleanor Roosevelt. She's apparently weighed in as well. Uh, General Sessions, uh, what's, what's going on here? Well, it's a real exaggeration. Of course, in Nazi Germany, they were keeping the Jews from leaving the country. They want us to take care of the miners, and that's fine. But they don't want to give us the money to take care of There are some who would like us to look the other way when dealing with families at the border and not enforce the law. The whole world is laughing at the United States, and they have been for years. Hello, and welcome to Trumpcast. I'm Jamal Bowie, Slate's chief political correspondent and your host for today's episode. Last month, Attorney General Jeff Sessions announced a zero-tolerance policy for illegal border crossings. If detained, migrants would face criminal charges, even if they were asylum seekers who tried to access official ports of entry. If they came with children, the government would remove them to separate facilities. On Wednesday, the White House pulled back from this position in favor of a new one. It would detain all members of families together, itself a violation of federal law. In all of this, critics have blasted the Trump administration as cruel and inhumane. They've also made provocative analogies, calling the centers concentration camps, a description that for many Americans evokes the Third Reich. Administration officials have pushed back. It's a real exaggeration, said Jeff Sessions during an interview with Fox News' Laura Ingram. In Nazi Germany, they were keeping the Jews from leaving the country, but this is a serious matter. Conservative defenders have done the same, condemning the analogy as hyperbolic and beyond the pale. But is it? The concentration camp is a broad category in its history precedes Nazi Germany. Are these detention centers actually concentration camps? And what should we take away from the description if they are? To discuss this, we're going to talk with Andrea Pitzer, author of One Long Night, A Global History of Concentration Camps. And we'll get to our conversation after a few tweets. We shouldn't be hiring judges by the thousands as our ridiculous immigration laws demand. We should be changing our laws, building the wall, hire border agents and ICE, and not let people come into our country based on the legal phrase they're told to say as the password. The border has been a big mess and problem for many years. At some point, Schumer and Pelosi, who are weak on crime and border security, will be forced to do a real deal so easy that solves this long-time problem. Schumer used to want border security. Now he'll take crime. What is the purpose of the House doing good immigration bills when you need nine votes by Democrats in the Senate and the Dems are only looking to obstruct, which they feel is good for them in the midterms? Republicans must get rid of the stupid filibuster rule. It is killing you. Democrats want open borders where anyone can come into our country and stay. 
This is Nancy Pelosi's dream. It won't happen. To talk about our detention centers at the border and the comparison to concentration camps, we have Andrea Pitzer, author of One Long Night, A Global History of Concentration Camps. Hi, Andrea. Welcome to Trumpcast. Thanks for having me on. Before we talk about the American detention centers at the border that have been in the news for the past week, I wanted to sort of ground listeners in a little history to talk broadly about, I think, the idea of concentration camps. And so... My first question, uh, your your book begins in Cuba at the turn of the 19th century. Is that where the concentration camp originates? Yes, that is sort of the moment in time when it emerges, like both the phrase comes out in that window, and it settles into a really specific idea. And that idea is the mass detention of civilians without trial on the basis of some aspect of identity, whether it's uh, class, race, ethnicity, political affiliation. And in this case, in those first camps in Cuba, it was class. It was they were the peasants out in the countryside. And the Spanish, who were in charge of Cuba at that point, it was part of their empire, wanted to flush out guerrillas, and they couldn't seem to pin them down because they were fighting these rebels. So the answer became to literally empty the countryside, to force everyone out and into locations behind barbed wire. And that was the first moment that this idea came forward as the specific detention of civilians, just without any crime against them, you know, that they had committed without any specific charge against them, just the mass detention of civilians in an enclosed space. Now, before that, we had a lot of other things that weren't quite the same, but were close, like Native American reservations and we had a Spanish mission system. Um, you know, so there are some precursors for sure, but two things make the camps kind of possible. There's uh, technological advancements that make it easier to do, and that's why it happens in this moment. Barbed wire is patented in the 1870s and widely you know, produced in factories, and also automatic weapons go into production. And so now you, read it, you need a really small guard force to control an awful lot of people. And that's sort of why camps can enter the world in that moment. Right. That's the, I, I find that, that latter point interesting, that just the emergence of, of automatic weapons changes the calculation for holding large numbers of people prisoner. It becomes more relevant later because you don't actually see uh, the Spanish Empire was pretty poor at that point in time. <laughs> so they weren't buying a lot of <laughs> uh, weapons, but it does start to enter the picture. And then within a couple of years, the next camps that occur they're used more broadly and more commonly. And of course, by the time we get to the famous examples like Nazi camps, you know, that becomes a key part of controlling populations. So those next camps, they, they're in the Philippines during the American occupation. Yes. The, um, uh, actually, in between those two, um, the British are fighting the Boers, the descendants of the Dutch settlers in southern Africa. And they're a similar thing, guerrilla warfare, and they have a hard time isolating the rebels and keeping them from getting to food and shelter. So they decide they'll empty the countryside. And so that's right at the turn of the century. So right at 1900, the end of 1900, the beginning of 1901. And they start sweeping all the wives and children from those families into very similar camps. But this time, they look even more like, they start to look more like what we think of as concentration camps. These were actually tent cities. 
and they were set up in some pretty harsh uh, locations. They were poorly situated. So even though there was no attempt to kill everybody off, you know, there weren't gas chambers, there weren't executions by, you know, mass executions by firing squad, tens of thousands of people died in these camps. And it's important to say that in Cuba, the estimate that they make is about 150,000 people died. You know, this is a lot of civilians and really outstrips the combat fatalities that happened. So from the beginning, this idea of a concentration camp was a very lethal one. Were people horrified by this? I mean, I have to imagine that um, the press, as such as it was, wasn't wasn't looking happily upon um, these conditions. Oh, no. And in fact, um, I mean, and and what was happening was horrific. So I don't want to make light of it at all. It was it was really grotesque. People collapsing, you know, like by the side of the road, starved to death, um, you know, emaciated pictures of children emerged. It was really terrible stuff. And there happened to be a whole group of exiles in uh, Washington and in New York that had been expelled from the island during this whole period who were more than happy to create a public relations juggernaut. And so, in fact, it was unbelievable the, the, the way they were able to use this. And they actually mobilized the whole country. One of the reasons that we went into, uh, some people have said the main reason that we went into the Spanish-American War, uh, the trigger, of course, was the sinking of the Maine. But the Maine was there because we had been sending all these relief supplies that people across the country, coast to coast, were gathering and railways were carrying it for free, beans and condensed milk and all these goods to help these starving people in the camps. So when the main happens, America is already ready to go to war because Spain is seems so horrific. And that's been amplified sometimes through yellow journalism reporting and sometimes through overstatements by this sort of public relations juggernaut that had formed. But the, the actual abuses were just incredibly horrific in the camp. People were dying left and right. And so if the if the next so if after the the Boer War you have um these camps in the Philippines how do we how do we get from Americans outraged at the treatment of civilians in Cuba to to deploying this strategy uh in the colonial sort of uh territory that we picked up as a result of the war with Spain Well that's the thing is it's very easy to be outraged by it when you observe it but if you're fighting a guerrilla war it gets very frustrating not to be able to pin down the insurgents. And so we inherited so many of the Spanish possessions after the Spanish-American War. And then suddenly we had, for a variety of reasons, an insurgency on our hands. And we turned very quickly to the same techniques. And newspapers at the time covered it and said, wait, the president said that this was extermination. Literally, President McKinley talked about the Cuban camps in terms of being extermination. And he said they would lead to no peace but that of the wilderness and the grave. It was very dramatic in his call to war with Congress. And then just, you know, two years later, we're using these same tactics. So it's a pretty shocking thing. And a lot of newspapers pointed this out. Um, And in fact, there was some litigation over it later. And they tried to use McKinley's words against the U.S. in negotiations. And they said, well, that was just him speaking. That wasn't anything legally binding. So sort of the hypocrisy of when someone else does it, it's a concentration camp. And when we do it, it's not which is used by many people around the globe across the last century, that also pops up very early. So do we just jump from here to World War II? Is that sort of the timeline? Like you have this... Actually, there's a really important thing that happens between. So between those first sort of 10 years that are colonial camps, they're so grotesque and outrageous. Um, The Germans do uh, basically want some camps in the wake of a genocide in Namibia, what is today Namibia. 
So all four of these first colonial camps are grotesque and are covered as such and are shocking to the world. And concentration camps kind of fall out of favor. But when we get to World War I, suddenly everybody wants to resuscitate them. And that's where you get the World War I internment. And I think that is in some ways the most important part of this history because you go from having almost no camps in the world at all in 1914, and by the end of the war, there are camps on six continents. There are bureaucracies of detention. You can send money. You can send packages. The Red Cross is observing. They become kind of rehabilitated and neutralized. And that is why I think we see the camps rising after the World War I that we do. This is how we get to the Soviet gulag. And this is also how we get to the first Nazi camps. So I'm, I'm curious about these World War I um, camps, because uh, I, I got to be honest, I, I think, you know, I, th- I think it's probably obvious by now that I, I've read your book, <laughs> but it was news to me that there were um, concentration camps during the First World War. It's not something that I was aware of. And so where are these crop up to to detain foreign nationals in their respective, for the respective combatants, if I have right. that right? So, so what happens is that, um, so first of all, I want it to be clear because I think people get confused. The words concentration camps are being used from um, you have the reconcentration and reconcentration camps that pop up most commonly with the Cuban conflict. But then by the Boer War, by 1900, concentration camp is the word that's used for this. And it's used for every kind of civilian detention without trial, mass civilian detention. So there's a, a lot of different kinds of camps. And so people think of World War I internment, but at the time, they were most commonly were just called concentration camps. They were just seen as a legitimate thing. And they happened because for a few different reasons. Uh, One big reason was that there was uh, a drive, a fear of spies, and there was a drive to lock up people from enemy countries who might possibly be spies. And there was actually quite a bit of resistance to universal uh, enemy alien detention, as they were called, um, early on. But after the sinking of Lusitania, when you had uh, hundreds and hundreds of civilians just, you know, slaughtered on a ship, the battle lines were already in place and they weren't moving a lot. And there was so much outrage. The government, I think, really felt compelled to do something dramatic, really had to. It was in the middle of a sort of a collapse of a coalition of England and England at the time. And so they very quickly just put out notices and began rounding people up. And so the thing that the First World War does that sets the stage for later as well is this is the first time people are told in newspapers in various places to register. They are told to uh, keep people appraised as to their locations. They are denied certain things. They can't have, you know, telescopes and maps. And and eventually, when the Lusitania is sunk, they're told to report. They turn themselves in. And they understand they're going to be locked up. But the idea is that this time sort of as a pariah will pass and they'll be let go. And of course, that's what did happen in the World War I camps. And so after that, I think there was established the expectation that that's how camps worked. And of course, later, it was not how they worked. Right. It, it, it seems like the World War I experience, as you said, normalized camps, created bureaucracy for camps, but also for perhaps the public, an expectation that this is a thing that was going to happen and that it wasn't especially terrible that it did. Right. There were all kinds of things. I mean, and it's really good that you didn't have the kind of fatalities that you had in the early colonial camps because those were horrific. Um, and there were very few of those kinds of things that happened in the First World War camps. Some of the ones that were on the 
sort of, you know, battle line uh, areas, um, you know, things could be worse in those situations if you had people taking and losing and retaking areas. But for the most part, you know, these people emerged and they did come out. And in, in the propaganda wars that happened during World War One, everybody wanted to look like the good guy. So they would allow, you know, again, you could send money, you could send packages. There, there were a lot of sort of privileges that could happen. There was a lot that was done to rehabilitate this idea of concentration camps, but then I think it made people feel safer with the concept than they should have. And really, after the war, then camps were everywhere. You've probably heard of the 1921 Tulsa race riot. Yes. After the Black Wall Street in Tulsa was burned down by a white mob, and many people were killed, the surviving African Americans from that community were rounded up into what was in newspaper headlines at the time called concentration camps. It was just a given that you could round people up and put them in concentration camps. And they were held there and could only be, for a time, only be released if a white person came to claim them, which was usually an employer who was missing their domestic worker or their gardener and often didn't even know their employees' names. You know, so these people languished in what was just broadly seen as a camp there. And there were a lot of camps like that that were short-lived, not part of a larger system, but it became a normal part of not just the U.S., but all around the world civilian detention like this was seen as acceptable. So the most infamous example of of this, of this phenomena is in Nazi Germany and and I'd say in the Soviet Union as well, the the, the gulag. Um, I guess my question is how do we did the Nazi concentration camps did they did they begin as extermination camps? Or was that like a a, a process that, that ended up in with sort of mass extermination? I think that's probably the most important thing people can, you know, get out of anything I'm saying today, which is that it they did not start the way they ended, and it was a process. And the Nazis, from years before they came to power, had no love for the Jews and had targeted them. And so that part is not a surprise. But the use of camps as an instrument to something like extermination took a long time to develop. And at first, uh, camps were part of the Nazi agenda from the very first weeks after Hitler was appointed chancellor in January 1933. That spring, you've already got Dachau being sort of the property there being reconstituted and remodeled to be turned into a concentration camp. So it happens right away. But at first, the camps don't look that different than some of the other camps that have been established elsewhere. They use them primarily on political opponents as part of the effort to seize power. And then they slowly move on to uh, using them on what were then called gypsies, what we would call Roma and Sinti, and vagrants. They would put sometimes habitual criminals uh, who had finished their sentences in to try to dilute it so it didn't look like quite so many political prisoners. But in the first month or year or so of the camps, the Nazis let a New York Times reporter in. They let a Times of London reporter in. They interviewed people. They were walked through, of course, sort of fake you know, relaxation and enjoyment that they were having. But most people in those camps were doing hard labor and were eventually let go. In fact, it's like five or six years before you get to the place where people are starting to be kept in permanently and not let go. Often people get a three-year sentence, uh, you know, or, or one slightly longer, slightly shorter, and they do their time and they're released. So those initial camps um, could be incredibly brutal and for people who were political opponents who had been, you know, elected officials, especially if they were Jewish elected officials, they could be tortured in these camps. 
but most of the population that was in them that didn't happen to. I don't want to make them sound light at all. They were terrible places, right. but they, they weren't um, in another universe from camps that already existed in the world at that point. You know, they would, were not that unlike early Soviet camps, let's say before the uh, Soviet Union had formed and after the Bolshevik Revolution, where they were locking people up, they would torture some people. They just detained a lot of people and there were, you know, forced labor projects. Um, that was a very common thing in in the world at that time. One, I guess, one question I have about about the progression is, I mean, obviously the the Nazis um, had like an ideological like hatred in, in addition to a racial hatred for Jewish people and other groups they deemed undesirable. Um, but it seems that in the sort of examples um, leading up to the Second World War and its concentration camps. There is kind of a the, – the mere act of putting people into camps leads the people who administer them to sort of treat those people as sort of subhuman or something close to subhuman. Do you see what I'm, do you see what I'm saying? Kind of like the, that, the act of doing that creates a kind of logic that can lead to, to ugly places. And it seems like that, Absolutely. That, that, that happens in these examples. And there's the extreme way it happens, driven by other forces, like with the Nazis. But it seems as if it happens in, in all these cases. It absolutely happens in all these cases. And, and part of what happens, too, is you have this um, – it was something you saw with, with treatment of Native Americans as well. And it comes to the fore again with concentration camps, this idea of civilizing these people. So there's – you know, they are somehow – filthy, degenerate, subhuman, and also that we are doing them a favor <laughs> by uh, doing these things to them. And so, for instance, this was part of what we, uh, the U.S. said in the Philippines. It was part of what the British did in the Boer camps. And um, it's rhetoric that I've been hearing this week about its summer camp, and they're going to get a haircut and schooling. And, you know, it, it's, it's very much the need to feel when you are oppressing somebody, like A, they deserve it, and B, you're somehow doing something good for them. And it's probably just a human, um, on an individual level, it's a human attempt to rationalize something that can't be rationalized. The idea of a concentration camp is, in its essence, a ludicrous, horrific idea. And so the mind tries to spin it in some way that would make it a rational thing when it isn't. But on the larger level, on a sort of the government level or the nation state level, they need to spin it this way because it's such a grotesque thing for a government to impose on a group of people. And so there has to be some idea that you're doing it. You know, you have to be able to argue to foreigners, to concerned people who might intercede, you know, or cause war that you're doing it for some good reason. Um, so that has been trotted out for a long time. The Nazi Germany, um, the, the thing about the camps there is initially they wanted the German population to leave. So they wanted German Jews to leave they were only about 1% of the population, and that seemed probably realistic in their heads. But, but this population wasn't leaving, and in part because the rest of the world would not take the people that wanted to leave. And so you get in 1938 Kristallnacht, which is this organized terror against Jews. And in that time frame, which is November 1938, across a couple of days, you have some 40,000 German Jews who are arrested and some 30,000 of them that are sent to the camps. And that five years into the camp system is actually the first time you have mass roundups of Jews. And it's, it's staggering and it is a huge explosion of population in the camp system. But even with that, 
more than 90% of those arrested during Kristallnacht are let go within the next year. Even then, there was the idea that you would push these people out. Um, the camps were not yet the instrument. That by then, they became, of course, the Kristallnacht part of the instrument of terrorizing them. But they had not yet become the idea that they're going to be the solution to the problem that, of course, later turned into the final solution. And I think that really happened once the war begins. And the Germans make incredible advances eastward very quickly. And suddenly they are running through areas that are not 1% Jewish. There are whole townships and shuttles that are, you know, 90% Jewish or 100% Jewish. They're going to have all these people that they don't have a place for. And Hitler talked about, I mean, there were all kinds of theories that they were going to send them off state reservations and work labor camps in the east and all of these things. And, of course, ultimately what they settle on is extermination. And that's really uh, the window after the war starts that you see what people think of solely as concentration camps. If you ask people what a concentration camp is, it will literally be these wartime Nazi camps, particularly once the death camps start. That is what people see as a concentration camp. But the thing is, you don't get to that point without going through all these other points that we talked about, because these were the camps that preexisted. Hitler referred to the Boer camps and that the British had killed people in them. He referred to wanting at the end, almost at the end of World War One, just a little later than that, before he was anybody, he was writing about Jews should feel what it's like to be in concentration camps. He was talking about Germans who were still being held in those enemy alien camps from World War One because they weren't released very quickly after the war. They were made to do labor projects. And so he was aware of these. And so this is where the kernel of that idea of what a camp is formed. Now, it became something horrifically different. And, and there really is no other system of camps like the death camps that the Nazis built in that period. That's a completely different universe, but it doesn't just come out of nowhere. So the, to circle back to the present day, even though I know there's kind of a, a broader history of this and we didn't even touch on Japanese internment uh, during the war, but um, to, to circle back to the present, it seems that by, by the definition you lay out, the detention camps uh, count. They, they fall under the category of a concentration camp. I argue that they do. I have been arguing um, this week that they do. And I realize that can be a little bit of a problematic term for people because what they think is that they hear that word and they're worried somebody is elevating what's happening on the U.S. border this week with what happened in Auschwitz. And obviously, it's completely different. But my concern is that we have early things that were called concentration camps that involved children getting sick and not being fed or taken care of well in tent cities and blazing temperatures 100 years ago. And we see that now. We see uh, years of rhetoric because when President Trump declared his candidacy in summer of 2015, he came right out of the gate with Mexicans as rapists and, and, you know, all of this rhetoric. So we literally now had years of rhetoric sort of demonizing this vulnerable group. And now the government appears to be acting on it in ways that go counter to any idea of what's efficient, what's useful, what's been required in the past, and no new laws have been passed. And it is a policy shift that seems to be designed entirely punitively to harm the people that it's addressing, and, and frankly, to please the base in this case as well. And when you have that kind of detention, civilian, mass civilian detention, and they're talking about, you know, it's, it's 2000, is the number that's been thrown around this week, but, but the possibilities of that and their target numbers 
that have been discussed by some of these anonymous sources are huge. And that ballooning of population in camp settings is one of the things that very frequently leads to all the horrors that I've talked about that happened anyway in camps, even when they weren't shooting and gassing people. And so I think it's important to come out early to say it's not so much that this is Auschwitz, but this can go really bad places and it doesn't have to be Auschwitz for there to be terrible harm. What's the argument against using that kind of language, against sort of drawing drawing that comparison? Because, for, I mean, for me, as someone who is history-minded, and uh, if someone replies to me, that's outrageous, to know that there's, there's, a, there's a clear uh, history here, there's a clear argument here. But I can also imagine uh, someone, just a, a regular and ordinary person who hears that and kind of just then dismisses the entire um the entire criticism. Oh, they're, they're just being hyperbolic. They're just being hysterical. Exactly. That's the thing is it, it can come across hysterical. And as having written some pieces this week that have been posted online that use that term, I can tell you that there's a large contingent of people for whom um, that's such a strong phrase that they then stop processing. But I'll also tell you that anybody who actually reads the piece gets it. <laughs> and that the outrage that I've heard has been much more from Russian bots to people who are huge Trump supporters who devote their entire feeds to that. Um, the people who might reasonably be able to make that complaint and in, in, uh, with a real authorial sensibility, the children of survivors, people who themselves had been in detention camp settings, um, many, many people who know concentration camp history, particularly Holocaust history, much better than I do have had no issue with that. I've, and I don't want to pretend like everybody agrees with everything. I think that it's really important to have a healthy debate over what exactly is a concentration camp and all that. But the the burden, the bundle of the outrage is from people who I don't think were going to be receptive to the idea that these camps were a problem. My fear is turning off some small percentage of people who, hearing that phrase, will not stop to think about what we're actually doing. And so that is the risk. We have been speaking with Andrea Pitzer, author of One Long Night, A Global History of Concentration Camps. Andrea, thank you so much for joining us on Trumpcast today. Thank you so much for having me. That's our show for today. You read Slate, you listen to this podcast. Have you tried Slate Plus? With Slate Plus, you get access to loads of new content additional podcasts, additional series. I've done two with my colleague, Rebecca Onion, The History of Slavery and The History of Reconstruction. I think they're great podcasts and great projects. And I think you'd enjoy them too. Get started with Slate Plus today at slate.com slash Trumpcast Plus. That's slate.com slash Trumpcast Plus for your free two-week trial. As always, we are on Twitter and you should follow us. Our account is at RealTrumpCast. That's at RealTrumpCast. Trumpcast is produced by Jason DeLeon, and today we had help from Daniel Hewitt. Special thanks to John D. Domenico, our voice of Donald Trump. I'm Jamal Bowie. Thank you for listening.